Welcome to Crossbridge Brickle's weekly podcast. Whether you are listening to us for the first time or revisiting a previously heard message, thank you for listening, and we hope that the time that you spend with us helps connect your life to the way of Jesus. Every week we gather in the south end of downtown Miami in the financial district of Brickle. If you're in Miami or coming to Miami to visit, make sure to join us Sunday nights at 5 o'clock at 1770 Brickle Avenue. Included with the podcast today, we want to provide online notes for you to follow along with the message through the Bible app, as well as our Spotify playlist to listen to our music played during our gathering on the weekends. All of this information is found in the description of this week's podcast. If you have any questions about Crossbridge, Jesus, or faith in general, we would love to hear from you, and the easiest way to connect with us is by emailing us at brickle at crossbridgemiami.com or send us a text to our text-in number at 305 305- Nine three zero seven zero zero six. Once again, thank you for tuning in. And now here's this week's message from Crossbridge Brickle. Good evening. If you texted hi into our number, you would get the notes for tonight, which includes our scripture passage. Tonight's reading is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, Some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they have even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And you may be seated. And as you're grabbing your seat, I'm going to ask for prayer just to prepare my heart as well as to prepare yours for God's word tonight. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the ability to be able to gather. Uh, Father, thank you for this wind. Thank you for the cool Miami winter. Uh, We know that spring is just around the corner, so thank you for allowing us to live a little bit of heaven this side of eternity. So thank you for the great weather and the great city that we're in. But Lord, more importantly, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how powerful it is, how true it is, how wonderful it is, because we know that through your word, it brings life, it brings clarity and direction to all who seek through it. So Lord, we come before you, and as we look to your word tonight, we want to look with eyes and hearts open so that we can know what your path is through your word. We come before you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. And so to kind of help us 
gauge a little bit about how we're going to go into this series. We've been talking for the last several weeks, and this is our last night. So if you have any questions, even if it's not about the topic, this is your chance to be able to throw it in there. Um, I apologize if I'm going to be a little on the spot. What we do with this series is we're asking everybody, if you have questions, doubts, comments, criticisms, anything that you want to bring up during this series, what you can do is you can take your phone out and you can text in to our text in number. You don't have to send a special keyword or anything. Just text in your question, and we're going to compile them towards the end of the service so that we can give an opportunity to do some live Q&A. And so grab your phone. We're going to do that in a second. But before we start the formal part of the message, I kind of want to help us to track a little bit of where we can kind of understand this, this true principle of reliability. For many of us, when it comes to getting feedback or getting some ideas of how we're going to use things, purchase things, or experience things, we typically go to the internet of all things, right? Maybe for some of us, we go to Siri, we go to Google. The first thing, if you don't understand how to do something, you go straight to the source. You go to the internet because the internet is never wrong, right? So we go to the internet to kind of guide us in this direction of learning and understanding. But then if you need to purchase something, for most of us, we have a default thought process. Oh man, I need to get something. I'm gonna go on Amazon, right? two-day prime, free shipping. If you're in Miami, there's actually like one-day prime now, and even prime now, which is like baller. It's so great. Uh, if you forgot something, you could probably have it within two hours. It's amazing. It, with like Instacart and all these different things. But not only is it interesting that we can purchase things so quickly on demand, but it's really interesting when you're trying to figure out what to purchase. For most of us, if we're trying to buy something and we don't know what brand to get, the first thing we'll probably do is we'll go to Amazon or some website and we'll look to see how many reviews there are. Like if it's got over a thousand reviews, it's a fantastic product, right? If it's got four stars, five stars, you're probably going to go to it. But if you go a little bit deeper, sometimes there's some products that you're going to read and they just have horrible reviews, which are probably more hilarious than the product itself. So, for example, one of my favorite kind of comments that I've been reading lately is, um, so I have this amazing, wonderful daughter, uh, Sayla. She's eight months old. And so we, we're trying to pick out like some fun books for her to read and learn from. Uh, yesterday, she learned how to high five, which was amazing. Oh my gosh, it's ridiculously cute. Like you walk up to her and you like high five and she just like smiles, puts her hand out and does this. It's so stinky cute. All right. Sorry. I'm a proud dad. Um, <laughs> So uh, one of the reviews was for this book. It's called Where's My Belly Button? I don't know if, it, of course, the premise is in the name, right? So uh, it's one of those silly books that you read with kids so that you can kind of help them understand their body and how it works. But, you know, some people, they just don't have, like, the right barometer to know that, like, this is a children's book and it's not going to be highly educational. So one of the reviews, it gave it a one-star review and it said, this is the dumbest book ever. It is obvious where your belly button is. Why do you need a book for it? Yeah, it's, it's like, and, and you, you know this because you'll read some comments and you're like, either you didn't get the joke or you really don't know how to use the product correctly. Um, but that's, for some of us, we go directly to the feedback loop. We want to know if this is a good product to purchase or use or buy. But not only that, if we're looking to entertain ourselves, we'll probably get some type of feedback. For most of us, if we want to know if a movie is good or not, we're going to go to Rotten Tomatoes, right? If you go there, it'll probably tell you if it's fresh or rotten or fried green or whatever the other ratings are for it. Um, so it's a fun website, but some people scam it, and so some of us get a little bit leery of that. But the last thing that some of us do, how many of us have a Netflix account, right? Most of us in this room. We probably either have one personally or we co-opt it from another person, right? So in Netflix, 
the time-honored tradition of scrolling through Netflix, and you're like, oh, I'm going to look for a movie. I'm going to look for a movie. But you know what usually ends up happening, right? We scroll through until we find something that says Netflix recommends, and then we're like, okay, cool. I'll check it out. Like, I don't know why, but there's this phenomenon that I'm learning more and more about. Like, people are all into this love is blind thing. Okay, I'm hitting right over here. For some of you, you're like, love is what? Don't worry, you're not missing anything. Uh, yes, it's, it's a garbage television show. Um, I can't say much. I have to confess, I'm actually an avid Bachelor fan. Um, <laughs> some of you are like, I have lost so much respect for you right now. Totally get it. I understand. I would lose respect for myself too. Um, but it's just a fun excuse to like invite people over and just like, oh my gosh, like what has love become? So, um, so I'd say all of this to kind of make us joke a little bit about how simply we think about the idea of feedback, credibility, and trustworthiness. Because tonight's topic is this idea of, is the Bible reliable? For some of us, the idea of the Bible is it's kind of on this spectrum. For some of us, we've maybe grew up with it and we read it a lot. For some of us, maybe we were introduced to it at a really late age. Or maybe for some of us, we're here in this room and, and we've never read it before, but we're, we're kind of interested in it. You know what? I'm not going to brush it off. I'm not going to not read it, but I kind of want to understand what to do with it. And so before we go into kind of one central passage that really encapsulates the big idea of what the Bible is, what I want to do is just remind you, if you have your phone, you can text in your questions. The central theme of tonight is, is the Bible reliable? So if you have a question about, you know, how can you know about authorship? How can you know about um, the inconsistencies, all the different aspects that most people have problems with the Bible? Text in your question, and I'll address those a little bit later in the message. But as we're kind of transitioning into the formal part of this, what I want to do is just help us to kind of understand the big picture of when it comes to the Bible. When we think of the Bible, we typically think of different arguments against the Bible. And what I want to do is help us to understand these kind of nine major ideas or kind of these criticisms of the Bible. And so if you're at all familiar with the scriptures, the scriptures kind of follow these different ideas for you and I to kind of walk through. And so the Bible is broken up into two major sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. But within the Bible, it's not just one book. It's actually 66 books compiled by different authors. And so one of the biggest criticisms of the Bible is the authorship issue. Because this book is not just one book that was sat down and kind of punched out like, like Stephen King, you know, sitting down for like a month and piling it out. It's not like that. This was a book that was compiled by over 40 different authors. And a key thing to know about that is there were 35 named authors and five unnamed authors. So there's actually unnamed people in the Bible that helped write the Bible. So we've got that basis. But not only that, we've got 40 some odd authors that wrote this book over 1,600 years. So almost 2,000 years, these 40 people compiling to help create this document, this for some people, they, they would call it a guidebook or a reference book. But what I want to do is kind of help us understand that one for all of us, when it comes to the authorship of the Scripture, this is a book that was compiled over many different decades and hundreds of centuries to help create one central theme that was going through the history of time. So it's not just going to be some book that 
you and I are going to want to sit down like a novel that has one story that kind of just goes simply from one end to the next. It's, it's actually a bunch of different authors that are all pointing to one central message through the different time periods that they're living in. So you've got Genesis, the beginning of creation. You've got the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that help explain the the culture of the people of Israel that were chosen by God. Then it moves into the poetic books. So you've got the Psalms, the Proverbs. You have these different instructional books. Then you have the prophets, the major and the minors. And then it moves into the New Testament, which in this time period, the scriptures, what we're going to look at tonight in Luke 24, is Jesus is, is writing the Bible in reference from the Old Testament. And every time that Jesus talks about the scriptures, he's always referring to the Old Testament. So he's referring to the authority of these authors that wrote the Old Testament scriptures, like David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these different writers. And so the first major criticism is how can over 40 different authors contribute to one central document without contradicting one another? That's a fair argument. That is a fair idea. And I want to preface this tonight. This is not going to be like a two-hour Bible seminary lecture. Uh, Ain't nobody got time for that. So uh, what I've done is in the notes, I've actually added a couple different links for you to watch some playlists on the big picture of the Bible. There's one major playlist I would encourage you to watch when you have time. It's called How to Read the Bible. Because the Bible is made up of 66 different books that have different genres. So, for example, if you're going to read Moby Dick or if you're going to read the Iliad, for some of us, we look at those books and they're novels or they're historical narratives. But there's so many different types of genres that were written in the scriptures that you can't just read the Bible as kind of like some life reference book. You have to read it understanding the context of what's happening in this book especially for you and I, because we're so detached from the original authors. And so authorship is one major criticism. Moving on, the next major criticism for us is this idea of canonicity, which is a fancy word for how the Bible got compiled. The the kind of simple way to describe it is that there are so many different books that were written that there's what's known as the authoritative canon or the 66 books. And then there's another word called the deuterocanonical, which is another just fancy word for second canon, which if you grew up in Catholicism, you might be familiar with this book called the Apocrypha. And so there's these different kind of questions that people bring up. And the major question when it comes to canonicity is this, how do you know which books should be in the Bible? Like, that's, that's a deep question because there are a bunch of other books that were written. Like, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. I really wouldn't want to read the Gospel of Judas because everybody knows what happened to him. But, <laughs> but there's a genuine question there because how can you say that this book is valid but this book isn't? And one of the things about this process, especially when it comes to authorship and it comes to canonicity, is one just kind of little peek into it is this process of what's known as textual criticism. Textual criticism, if you're familiar with history, it's the process by knowing which, if a book is truly known by its author and if it's truly valid by the person who commissioned it. And so during this time period when the Bible was being compiled, there were a lot of people that were like trying to swipe in at the last second. And what they would do is they would write a book and then they would put a disciple's name on it to kind of like validate their writing 
but really all they were doing was just deceiving the people because it truly wasn't written by the person they said it was, and they were trying to kind of almost sink into the church to indoctrinate it with false doctrine. And so, there are so many pieces of the puzzle that when people kind of dismiss the Bible, you can't just dismiss it. You actually have to do a little bit of investigative study. And so, first, we've got the issue of authorship. Then we have canonicity. And then we have the ethical question. This is the one that really bothers a lot of people. When you read the Old Testament, you read stories about how God allowed people groups to be completely just wiped out. And it seems like God is okay with the murder and the death of people groups, of children, and of different people throughout the ages. But we also have to understand this very deep idea. When it comes to the issue of ethics, we have to be very clear that we're understanding whether the scriptures, in particular, the passage that you're reading, is this a directive passage or a descriptive passage? There's a very big difference. I can tell you, and for some of you, there's a very big difference of me saying to you, go out today and murder someone, which, let me be very clear, especially for those online or listening to the podcast, don't do that. That's dumb. But then there's, you know what? I heard on the news the other night, and sadly for us in Miami, this is all too frequent of an occurrence. You hear on the news, hey, there was a a murder in... Homestead, there was a murder in downtown, there was a, a, a robbery here, the robbery there, and, and there's all these different crimes that happen, but there's a difference between directing the behavior and describing the behavior. And you have to be very clear when you're reading the scriptures to see if God is explaining this behavior or if he's giving a command. And very rarely are there situations where God is saying to people, I need you to murder, because he never gives the direction to murder. But there's some nuances, and I can't get into all the details in the Old Testament, how there are times that God directs His people to, fill, to fulfill His plan, and for some of us, a very difficult sort of way. And I can't get into all the details, but I would highly encourage you, especially when it comes to the Torah and to the, the poetic books, there's so much information about genre and authorship and purpose of those books that you really need to dive deeper because I can't just give you a glib answer and expect that to fulfill your frustration with the Bible. So that's kind of one major criticism is the ethical criticism. And then next is the idea of historicity or is this a real book? The historicity of the Bible is, it's not just some random book that got put together. Is The question is, is it a real book? How many of you have books of poetry in your house or in your apartment, right? For some of you, poetry moves your heart. But a lot of the time, poetry is a combination of either fiction or nonfiction. Poetry can describe an ideal setting or it can be describing your emotions. But you have to know what's happening for the poetry to deepen your idea of its understanding. So for many of us, when it comes to the historicity of the Bible, our first question that really bleeds into the next idea is, how can this be a real book? Like, let me just go a little bit further. How can this be a real book when there are stories about people building giant boats that somehow the entire world flooded, but everybody on the boat was okay? How can there be a story of a guy that got swallowed up by a giant fish, somehow lasted for three days, I'm sure he smelled horrible, but he made it through, 
And then he got puked out by the fish, and then he kept going on his way. Let's be real. That stuff sounds insane. But you can't just chalk it up to, oh, those are just allegorical stories. No, no, no. There's, there's actually moments in the Scripture that we have to find the balance between this next idea, which is the mythology idea, the mythology criticism. And this is a, a very key idea for some of us we need to understand. There's a difference between reading the Scripture literally and then reading the Scripture literarily. For example, if I'm going to read a narrative to you, it's probably not going to be poetic. But if I read a poem to you, there's going to be some kind of rhythm, some kind of cadence, some kind of imagery, maybe similes, metaphors, all of that. But you have to be very clear when you're reading the Scriptures and helping to understand when the writer is writing, are they using literal imagery or are they using literarily just different ways to describe what they're seeing? That's a very difficult task for most people, is to recognize that when you're reading the Bible, you can't just walk right through it and get it all. You kind of have to read it, think, process, and understand it so that you're not just cavalierly walking into the Bible and thinking you're going to understand it all. There's a balance to knowing that you can read it and you can understand it, but at the same time, you have to come as a humble student to it. Because you also have to understand the Bible was written, and this is the next idea, from a particular time period. And so for some of us, the time period that it was written in, all during that over 1600 time period, there were different words that were used. There were different ideas that were used to communicate numbers and facts and and scientific studies. And so for many of us, one of the biggest arguments is how can the Bible be reliable when it's scientifically incompatible? Again, you have to go deeper into this idea, and I first want to help all of us to understand that faith is not against science. God is the author of science. And so if God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the stars in the sky, and he created the perfect balance of how the earth rotates on its axis so that we're not burning up or freezing up or flying off the planet, right? If God created the earth, I think he wants us to use the tools which which he created the earth by to help us understand the earth better. But we have to be humble students about this. We can't just walk in with our Western predispositionally ideas into this book because it is coming from multiple generations of many different authors with many different backgrounds, primarily a Jewish background, some Aramaic language thrown in there, And then the last part, the New Testament, was primarily written in a language called Koine Greek, which is another way of saying common Greek. And I'll get into this next part about translations. This is the last major criticism of the Bible. Like, how many of you own a Bible, but not only own one Bible, but like multiple translations of it? Yeah, like for some of you in this room, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'll break it down real quick. So the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And then, just like for many of us, we don't know those languages. So it got translated over time into, for most of us in this room, our primary language is English. And the first known translation of the English Bible was in the 1300s by John Wycliffe. And so that Bible, the first Bible that was written, kind of became the template for all the other different translations that eventually came out. 
They would use the original manuscripts and then the English language derivatives to help bring us what we know as the modern Bible. And so today, we have this spectrum of translations. The easiest way I can explain it is on this side, we have what's called word-for-word translations. And then over here, we have what's called thought-for-thought translations. The only way I can kind of easily explain this is how many of you speak multiple languages? Okay, so we've got people that speak fake languages. Did I hear fake languages? Does somebody here know Klingon or something? All right, (laughs) all my Trekkies in here. Um, So for most of us, we understand if you know multiple languages, sometimes if you're speaking English but you're trying to translate to Spanish, there are just some times that there is no English or Spanish word to explain the other idea. And so what typically happens in those moments is it goes from being a word-for-word translation to a thought-for-thought or idea-for-idea translation. And that's kind of the spectrum. So to kind of help us understand that, the the translation that we use here at at, uh, Crossbridge is what's known as the ESV or the English Standard Version. The catch with the English Standard Version is that it reads more word-for-word, but it reads at an 11th grade level. So... For example, when I'm reading my daughter Bible stories, I'm not going to read to her the ESV Bible because, first of all, she doesn't understand the English language. But then, second of all, I'm not going to read an 11th grade book to her. I'm going to read something that's a little bit more friendly to her so that she can understand the ideas. And and so what happened over time, that's where the idea of of translations came to be. You've got word for word in the middle. There's this idea called dynamic equivalent, which tries to balance the middle. So you've got ones like the NIV, the NLT, which is the New Living Translation. Um, And then over here in the Thought for Thought, there's another one called the Message, which is more of a paraphrase. And I love the Message because it's fun sometimes. I I dabble more in this world because I'm a Bible nerd. But it's really fun to read the Message because it just forces you to think about the Bible from a different perspective, to read it differently, to think differently. Because sometimes if we stay over here too much, what can happen is we build tradition into our brain. Like, this is the only way that I can understand this when actually maybe somebody's genuine heart to help you understand the Word of God and to see it from a different perspective, maybe just reading it from a different translation helps you to think differently. And so that's the major problem or the major criticism. And and some of you that have been doing the math, you're like, that was only eight. You're weird. Why'd you say nine? There's one more criticism, but it's at the very end. I'll get to it later. So All that to say, that is seminary in like 20 minutes. And I've got a lot more to go, but I'm going to keep it very concise. So if you have a Bible with you, if you have the app, we're going to be in Luke 24, and I want to help you understand this story really quick. So what we read earlier, what's known as the story of the road to Emmaus. The story of the road to Emmaus happens like this. If you're familiar with the Easter story, what happened was Jesus was killed, was buried, resurrected, and he resurrected on the third day, or Sunday, the first day. And so when he resurrected, what happened in the story is the tomb was open, the guards were gone, nobody was there. But early that morning, some of Jesus' followers, in particular, one follower named Mary, went to the tomb, saw that the tomb was open, and just was distraught. And you got to think about it from her perspective. She's been following Jesus, her leader, her Lord, her Savior, not only was killed, but now the body's gone. Like, how weird would it be if, like, you went to the grave of a loved one and you're, like, going to go pay your respects and you're like, oh, there's a hole here. Like, 
that would be kind of weird. You probably would have some really confusing emotions like who do I sue and what's next, right? Um, but what's happening in this story is Mary not only sees the open tomb, but she meets this angel. And the angel says to her, why are you here searching for the dead when he's actually alive? And so Mary hears this and she runs back. And so she runs back to tell the rest of the disciples. And then we read in earlier Luke 23 about how some of the disciples run and they go check it out for themselves. They come back, they tell the story. But then you start hearing in this story in Luke 24, starting in verse 13, these two people, Cleopas and an unnamed person. I wish we knew the other name, but we don't. That's the problem. But we start reading about how these two people are distraught and they're walking out of Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem for Passover. They thought this Jesus man was gonna come and save Israel from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Next thing you know, he's killed and the body's gone. But then as they're walking, all of a sudden this third person walks up next to them. Like, you know how that feeling is when like you're walking with your friend down the street and like this third person starts hovering, it feels kind of weird. But not only that, the person starts talking to them. And they're like, hey, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And these two are like, don't you get it? Like, you know what the talk of Jerusalem is all this week about, right? Like, for us, it's like the coronavirus. Have you not heard of this thing? For this person, it's, why are you so sad? What, what's, why are you so distraught? And the two men go on to explain that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth that came he was, a key phrase that they say is, he was mighty in word and deed among all the men and women of Israel. He was captured by Roman authorities, he was executed, and now the body's gone. But then they also say this key phrase as they're explaining it to this third person. They're explaining and they say, and this has been from three days. Three days ago, this all happened and the body's gone. And so that's kind of the scenario. But next what happens is, as we read, Jesus, who the scriptures say reveal or concealed himself from these men so that he could explain this big idea. He walks and talks with them. And as they're going to Emmaus, Jesus starts talking with them, but he explains to them this incredible concept that from Moses to the prophets to that time period, how the entire known scriptural canon all pointed to Jesus. For those of you that are in here, how incredible of a Bible study would that be? Like you're sitting with Jesus and he's like breaking down the Bible for you. Like, hey, remember when it said back in Genesis 3 that there was going to be a serpent and then there was going to be this guy that steps on the serpent's head? Hey, that's me. And then in Isaiah, when it talks about the suffering Savior, this guy, right? How amazing of a Bible study would that be? But what I want us to kind of walk back from, from this story is really the bigger idea when it comes to the problem of the reliability of Scripture. And to kind of help us think through this is to really just use the story of the disciples. Think about it. These 12 men were following Jesus for three years, and Jesus explained everything to them explained that there was going to be a day where the sheep were going to be scattered because the shepherd was going to be struck down. 
And then there was going to be this temple that was destroyed, but it would be rebuilt in three days. And, and he uses all of this imagery. But then sometimes he just comes straight out to the disciples and says, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back. And as many times as Jesus said that to the disciples, it's kind of like when your mom would say to you, like, take out the trash, take out the trash, take out the trash, but you still don't do it. It's Jesus is explaining the key jewels of the kingdom of God for three years, and they still didn't get it. Even the followers that were going to Emmaus, they explained the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that there was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who came to Jerusalem, was killed, buried, and resurrected, and it just so happened that all of this went down within the last three days. They're literally explaining the gospel to Jesus, and they still don't get it. But what Jesus does is he says, okay, I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm not going to belittle you. I'm not going to criticize you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to explain everything to you. Moses, the one that helped free the Israelite people, that's actually a picture pointing to me that I'm going to be the truer and greater Moses. David, the king of Israel, the one that helped bring in and structured the temple where many men and women throughout the ages went to go worship God, David is actually just a picture of the truer and greater king of kings. That we don't have to worry about going to a temple anymore. We don't have to go to a central location and get approved by God by sacrificing animals and giving burnt offerings. Jesus was the burnt offering for us. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that many people had to bring to the temple during those times. And so Jesus is explaining all of this. And, and as this is going on, a greater thing awakens. And this beautiful picture happens that when Jesus was walking with them, it says in that passage that all of a sudden, as he was breaking bread with them, for us, again, this is a cultural vernacular thing. In that passage, it says they were breaking bread. For us, that's chopping it up, getting a bite. So they were having a meal. And as they were having a meal, Jesus ate with them. And then all of a sudden, their eyes opened. And they realized it wasn't just some third creepy person it was the person that they were so distraught about losing. And as soon as they realized who it was, he vanished. And it, as soon as they got it and they realized it and Jesus was gone, they were so excited to realize that everything they were talking about, finally it made sense. So they didn't stay in Emmaus. They went back all the way to Jerusalem, told the disciples. And as soon as they told the disciples, Jesus appears out of nowhere, and he says this key phrase that we do every single week in our church. We call it the meet and greet, but in church history, it's called passing of the peace because Jesus walks into the room out of nowhere, and he says to the disciples, peace be with you. So we don't just do peace be with you, and we don't pass it on just because it's kind of the churchy thing to do. We do it because it reminds us that when the disciples were scared and freaked out and they thought that the Roman government was about to come find them and kill them because that's exactly what they did to Jesus, Jesus comes into the middle of the room to these men and these other followers that are with them 
after investing three years of his life into them, and most of them ran away. Instead of criticizing them and condemning them, he walks into the room and says, peace be with you. That's the posture we should have when it comes to help sharing the Word of God. Because I'm just going to be frankly real with you. For most of us, the reason why we have a problem with the Bible, it's not because you have a problem with God. It's probably because you have a problem with how this book was used against you. Maybe you've lived a life that you've made some mistakes or you've made some choices that really good Christians, and I use that very loosely, made you feel ashamed, made you feel just disgusted and and forsaken and unloved. So really, you don't have a problem with the credibility of the Bible. You have a problem with the credibility of Christians. And so that's just kind of something that I kind of want to tease before we get into this last idea. So I told you I was going to do this. So if you have questions or if you have any last thoughts about historicity or canonicity or simplicity or any issues, feel free to text it in. So I'm going to do this real quick. And I apologize if I do this really slowly. Um, I'm going to read these in real time. I had to use the iPad because I my eyes are going bad. So, okay, I'm looking these up. And while I'm doing this, if you want to text in your last questions. Okay, I've got some coming in. Okay. All right, question number one. And I won't say your name. If somehow I have your number in here, don't worry about it. I'm not going to put you on blast. That'd be weird. Um, okay, question number one. I promise it's coming up. Okay, question number one. How does something that happened so long ago, in parentheses, the cross, affect what you and I do and feel today in this modern world? That's a great question. How can a book that describes events that happened 2,000-odd years ago mean something to you and me? So this is where I kind of want to help clarify the events of the Scripture, the events of the Bible. When we read the Bible, the Bible isn't just an encyclopedia. Like, it's not just Wikipedia or a Google search. The, the Bible is one giant major story that evolves over the sequence of the history of time to tell one major story. And the good thing about what we're doing today is Jesus explained to those men that were walking to Emmaus that everything that happened in the Bible is to point to the work in the person of Jesus Christ. Because the scriptures talk about this idea that Jesus, who is the Son of God, is actually the manifested or the revealed person of God or God made flesh. And so we have God the Father, we have God the Son, Jesus, and we have God the Holy Spirit. But the work of Jesus was done so that when God created the heavens and the earth and he created you and me, he wanted to have a relationship with us, but because we felt like we knew better than God, we broke the system. And so our creator loved us so much that when we corrupted the file, he was willing to not only reboot the system, but give us an entire new programming at the expense of his own son. And so that's the question that you and I have to wrestle with is, is not did that historic event 2,000 years ago, why should I read it and why should I even care about it is it's this deeper question that Jesus, and we talked about this last week when we talked about the idea of the resurrection. If the resurrection isn't true, 
then Jesus was insane. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Jesus and his claims would either make him a liar, a lunatic, or if everything he said is true, he's Lord, he's master, he is the king of creation. And that's why we can't just say, oh, the Bible is some book that has no effect on my life because Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That song that we sang earlier, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Him, then you have to wrestle with Jesus. It's not, let me see if I can find another way or if I can just kind of get on the good side of the scales of eternity. No, Jesus made an audacious claim that if you die and you want to go to heaven, the only way you can go to heaven is through Jesus. That is a brash, insulting thing to say if you have no desire to see that it's true. So why does these events in the scriptures bother us or why should, it, why should we care about it? Because eternity is in the balance. That's why it's important. So thank you so much for that. Uh, another question just came in. Okay, that's what happens when you have an old iPad. Okay, question two. When it comes to the ethical objections to the accounts of God in the Bible, can you speak to the times like in Joshua 6, 17 through 21, when God clearly commands killing and judgment and uses his people as an instrument of these commands and judgments? And what should a Christian respond to those objections be? Okay. Pretty light question. Um, what I was talking about earlier about how the descriptive versus the directive, um, there are some really good books that explain this entire process in detail. Um, when you read the book of Genesis, it talks about how when God was raising up the Israelites, how he wanted them to be what's known as a sanctified people. And so there were different people groups all throughout the world that sadly, because of them falling away from God, they became corrupted, very immoral, and very devious people to the point that they were raising up idols to worship. Some of these people groups and cultures, they even started doing witchcraft. They were sacrificing children. It, like, there was so much evil that quickly in the book of Genesis, God had to reboot the system by using Noah in the story of the flood. And so, in Joshua, one of the stories about the, the larger explanation of how the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, how those bleed into the next section of the scriptures like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and Esther. These books are about the establishment and the preservation of the people of Israel. So there's a very fine line that God instructs his people to preserve themselves at the expense of defending themselves against wickedness. And it's, it's a difficult story to read because if you believe in this God of all benevolence and all love and all compassion, it, it, you have to wrestle with the idea of a father that's willing to do whatever to protect his children. Like, the only way I can explain it is, and I say this not glibly, but I just, I don't know how else to explain this, is like, when my daughter was born, the first time I saw her, I finally realized that I would do anything to protect her. And if necessary, if somebody tried to harm my daughter, I would do whatever it takes to protect her, even if I had to take a life. And I know that sounds dark and deep, 
but I love my daughter. And if somebody tried to harm her, I would do whatever it takes to protect her. And that's a very, very, very simple way to explain how much God loved his precious children of Israel. That when there were people groups and there were people that were trying to destroy Israel, people that followed the name of Yahweh, God had to instruct his people that there are going to be people that are going to try to destroy you. And if you do not stop them, they will destroy your entire camp. And and especially in the book of Joshua, you see how there were some people that when those people that God instructed to, to take care of, there would be one or two people that would get away, but then they would create a group of people that would rise up, that would try to attack Israel. And the cycle just kept going over and over and over again. And so I know this isn't the easiest way to describe it. There are a bunch of really good books. And if you want to talk afterwards, I can explain those to you. But I think if we would look at the scriptures as not just some description of previous events, but as the story of a father that will do whatever he can to raise up his children, protect them, because through those children was going to become a redeemer. And he would do whatever it takes to protect the children that he's made a promise with, but most importantly, to protect the promise that he's made to you and me, that there would be someone that would come from the line of David that would redeem us not just once, but once for all. So that's one way to answer that question. Um, Okay, last question. And again, if I don't get to your question, I apologize. Um, Give me one last refresh and then make sure I'm not missing anybody else. And again, if you have more questions or if your question you don't want to be answered in this kind of format, totally understand. I'll be available afterwards. I'd love to talk with you and get you some more resources. But the easiest thing that you can do is when you text in, those two video links, one is called How to Read the Bible. The other is called The Overview of the Book of Luke. It'll explain the big picture because sometimes how do all of us see the big idea when it comes to the Bible? All right, last question. I hate the three bubbles. Okay. Uh, How do you reconcile the creation story in Genesis with modern scientific discovery? Evolution, dinosaurs, etc. Okay. Um, This is something that many of us, we get pigeonholed in saying my position is right and yours is wrong, therefore you're stupid. Like, this is where we have to have a lot of grace with people because when we look at the spectrum of the family of God, many people have different positions on this. Like, there's the conservative position that is, it was a literal story. Everything that happened in Genesis 1 through 3 is literal. There were seven literal 24-hour days. God literally spoke creation all into existence. And everything that happened literally happened. And then there are some that will say, in light of scientific evidence, that there's what's known as the ages theory. Like, the seven days were actually seven ages. And so, age one was the evolution of light and how the Big Bang created the combustion for the process of the light particles that were created in the universe. And then over time, those particles came together and created planets. And then so, there's kind of the spectrum of how that works. At the end of the day, this is my heart. If you have general criticisms about that process, I want to help you understand that science, especially when it's used to look to the past, is as precise 
and as speculative as it can be. Because nobody truly knows what happened. None of, none of us knows when the Big Bang happened. None of us knows when God spoke existence into the world. But what I want to tell you is there's two ways to look at it. And if you know me and you hang around me long enough, my wife laughs every time I say that because that's usually my answer for everything. There's two ways to look at it. Um, it's like a double-headed coin. Um, if you look at the scientific compatibility of the ages theory, I think you could argue for that, that point of view. I think you could say that within reasonable scientific process, it, it is possible that the narrative of Scripture is, you know, age one, age two, millennia three, like the, whatever the attributed numbers are. And so this is where I'm going to put myself on a personal limb. And again, this is not directed from Scripture. This is not, this is not the position of Crossbridge. I am sharing my personal opinion as your pastor. Personal opinion. I believe that if God created the heavens and the earth, and that if His Son could redeem my soul from eternal separation with God just by His work on the cross, it is theoretically possible that that same God could speak existence into existence. It's possible. Will I know that for sure? No, because I can't go back to the, the origins of the world. But as much as science is pointing to the idea that there's ages, I don't think they're incompatible. That's where you have to look at the argument of the literary versus the literarily, or the, liter, the literal rendering of Scripture versus the literal, literary. that's a really hard word to say when your mouth is messed up. Literarily, like the allegorical composition. And so whether you believe in a literal creation or a metaphorical creation, it is okay. Because I don't think either or is incompatible with scientific data. You just have to be very careful when you're arguing your position as authoritative. And that's what typically happens in the church is we pick one position that's not clearly outlined and then all of us make it dogma. Like, if you don't believe in my position, you're an idiot, so get out of my face. That is not how God works. The biggest thing that I encourage you to do is, and we talk about this in our covenant partnership class, is that there's three major types of doctrine. There's what's known as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the death, burial, and resurrection. And by that resurrection, all sin for all time is paid for for all people who believe. And then there's the second point of doctrine, which is known as beliefs. What you believe about baptism, what you believe about um, expression of music, or uh, what you believe about the proper way to do worship, what you believe about how to do fellowship in your community groups, all that. That's tier two. Tier three is expression, like what type of music you choose. Like we, we try to sit in this, we use this idea called ancient future. We try to do a lot that resonates with the history of the church, but we try to do it in a futuristic new way because we don't want to forsake the tradition of the church, but we also recognize that many of us probably don't want to do Gregorian chants every Sunday. So we try to sit in that tension. And so with all that said, this is the last criticism. And again, if you have a question, I will personally talk to you. I will personally message you back and talk to you with it. But this is the last idea, the last major criticism. We talked about historicity, canonicity, all those. But you know what the last criticism is? You. 
you are the last critic that is stopping you from believing in what the Bible is. So that's why I go back to the question. Do you have a problem with the Bible not because you don't think it's a historical verified book? Do you have a problem with the Bible not because you struggle with the mythology components, the allegorical? Do you have a problem with the Bible not because of the book itself, but because of what the book has done to you? And that's where I personally want to say, if the church has hurt you, if the Bible has been used as a weapon rather than a guide or a source of peace and joy for you, I personally apologize because I've done that. Like back in high school, I don't know why, I just was like super, if you're familiar with the different gifts of the Spirit, for some reason, like during that season, I was highly prophetic. I was the guy that would walk up to you, tell you you were wrong, and tell you where to get off. I won't use the words I used because it was not proper. Um, But man, I was just this arrogant punk person that because I knew Jesus, I was so much better than you. But you know what happens when you get to know Jesus? You realize how much he loves you no matter how good you are or bad you are. There's nothing you can do that will separate you from the love of Christ. No matter how arrogant, punk-like you are, or how insecure you are, or how much doubt you have, and that's okay, because you can bring your doubts to God. God can handle it. That's why we say every weekend, if you're here and you've got questions, we are welcoming you here, because we want you to feel welcome, because that's what God did for us. He welcomed us when we had our doubts. And so, we hope that this series has been encouraging to you. But we hope more importantly that this is not just an end point, this is a starting point for you. If you have more questions, don't just let this be a church that you went to and you got a couple questions answered. No, walk the journey. Do what Jesus did with the men from Emmaus. He walked with them, he talked with them, and he searched the word with them. Because at the end of the day, if you don't get anything from today, this is the one thing I want to tell you. The Bible will mean nothing to you if Jesus doesn't mean everything to you. I can argue with you till I'm blue in the face about why the Bible is a real book, but at the end of the day, if you don't believe in who Jesus is, the Bible means nothing. It's just some fable book that some groups of people throughout the world use to push their agenda. I don't believe this is a book of fables. I don't believe this is just some book that we use to make ourselves feel better. This is a book that was inspired by God himself because it was written by the Spirit of God to direct and guide all people to know that there is a Father that loves all of us, that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that we are created in the image of God, but we are made to be a part of the family of God. And so if you're here today and you're not a part of the family of God, I want to personally invite you that maybe today is the day that you want to join the family of God. And if you want to talk to me about that, I would love to personally talk with you and welcome you to the family today. I'll be up here afterwards and we can talk as long as you want. Hey, if it's about Jesus, I'll talk until tomorrow because there's nothing more important than Jesus. With that said, let's pray together. Father God, we love you. We come before you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it means to us. But more importantly, Father, 
what the word means to you. Your word is your inspired, breathed out book, which is good for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So, Father, I pray that the word of God is not just some guidebook or rule book that we follow. I pray that it is a, a source of life and hope for us because it is a source of life and hope for all the world. We come before you, Father, and thank you for allowing us to have the word of God, which points to Jesus. So, Father, let us not just look to the book, but let us look to your son. And we pray and we ask that all that we do is to follow him, to glorify him, and seek him first so that everything else will be added. In the holy, wonderful name of Jesus, amen.